0: All right. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining and thanks for your patience with the uh, the week break. Last week, we are now back on schedule for the final stretch of John's gospel. And as this particular piece of the study concludes in the coming three weeks, uh, Robert has a couple announcements about the future of the study.
1: Yeah, so we are going to take a break after we're done with John. The break is going to be a little bit lengthy, at least, um, you know, at least a, a few months, a couple of months, but it really could be a longer break. And but we are coming back, um, so so this is not like being canceled or whatever. So one of the things that we need to figure out is what are we studying next. Personally, I would like to stay away from apocalyptic literature. I don't want to do Revelation, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They get tricky, and no, because I am you know, trying to keep something from people. Those books are open to so much interpretation that we would just sit here and argue all day. And I just don't feel like that's the most productive use of this time. Not that you shouldn't study those books in a different setting. So at the end of today and next week and the week after, feel free to suggest what it is you would like to come next. Or you could also email me or Matt and we will uh, figure out what we're doing next. Matt, is that fair, or is there anything you would like to add?
0: Yeah, uh, that all sounds great. If if people, we we are currently discussing what we would like to do next, and of course, I'll you know I I'm considering my own thoughts on that as well. But as part of that consideration, if people have particularly strong feelings about where to take the study as we move on to another piece of scripture, uh, we would like to know that because that will be a part of our calculation. So especially if there's like a trend among the participants. We got everybody who wants to do this. Well, all right, maybe we will go ahead and do that. Um, otherwise, if people don't have a strong feeling, then I will probably defer to Robert's judgment. Cause I'm leaning on him to guide me through understanding all of this. So uh, for me to, I, I guess I don't have any, I don't have any requests. I'm, I'm looking to, to everybody else to tell me what I need to read and understand next. So we are looking for input on that, but uh, without consuming too much time on that, uh, that's all we have for, for that. Um, We don't have an announcement for when the second part, when when the new version of the study will come back yet. We will make that announcement before we're finished up. Um, But that will be later in the spring into the summer. So uh, we'll have a, we'll have a break in the spring.
1: Yep. Um, And my suggestion right now, is that we do acts. I'm just saying that so you guys can think about it. And then, like I said, you can email us or just Uh, at the end of the the session, you know, discuss it. If you really hate that idea, let me know. I am open to whatever the group would like.
0: Last thing I should clarify too, that I should have mentioned uh, the best way to do it. You're welcome to email me, of course. Um, But for the sake of organization, if you have thoughts about what text to read next, uh, head over to the Bible study page of the website, and there's a box to contact Robert and just send him a message through that box. And then we will uh, organize those emails later and see if there's a, a some common themes among the group requests
1: okay so are we ready to get started yeah i think so let's do it okay as usual we are going to start with the passage being read so here we go
2: now very early on the first day of the week while it was still dark mary magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been moved away from the entrance So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and told them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out to go to the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down and saw the strips of linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who had been following him, arrived and went right into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the strips of linen cloth, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, came in, and he saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. So the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she bent down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Mary replied, They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Because she thought he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus replied, Do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and informed the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what Jesus had said to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained.
1: Okay, that was the reading for today. We didn't quite finish the chapter, but we will finish it next time and move into the last chapter of the book of John. Okay. Hopefully my audio is better today than it was last week. If it isn't, somebody stop me. Um, but I have upgraded equipment. Okay. Chapter 20 puts us straight into the resurrection narrative, right? The last chapter was all about the crucifixion, and now we are into the resurrection. Now, the both narratives, both events, I ought to say, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, are key to the Christian faith. So they are described in all four Gospels. Now, this, of course, on, on one hand is very good, but on the other hand, it can present some challenges. Why? Because if you have the same event described in all four Gospels, you would expect them to be consistent. And people really look at this in detail, right? They put the Gospel side by side and they go, hey, do they tell the same story? Now, in the blog, I included... The narratives of the other three gospels. Know that you couldn't find them yourself. You know it's it's very simple. You could just Google it. But if you're interested in reading how the other three gospels describe the same event, uh, you can you can go to the blog. Now, here's the the issue or the question or whatever is: Are the four gospels consistent? And is that good? Is that bad? Honestly, I find like there's a no-win situation here for for Christians normally because. From an evidentiary standpoint, if narratives are not identical, that is a good thing, right? Think of it in the context of a trial, of a modern trial. If you have four witnesses who tell the same story, but in slightly different ways, they use slightly different words, maybe their timing seems just slightly off here and there, you you can actually rely on those witnesses more because you realize that everyone is giving you an independent account, If all four witnesses gave you the exact same testimony, I mean, down to the letter, then you can probably conclude that they're either all giving the same testimony of just one person. Essentially, one person said, hey, everyone, here's the story. Repeat this. Or perhaps in the worst of cases, they colluded to just tell a lie. Now, when you read the four Gospels, you realize that these are different witness accounts. There there is kind of no organization here. But then the skeptic will say, you see, the Bible has contradictions within it, and they will challenge the, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. So <laughs> with that context in mind, can we, in a sense, make the best out of the two challenges? And, and like I said, the, the, the four narratives are different enough that they clearly show four different, at least, witnesses, uh, which is very good for historical reliability. And then on the other hand, can we still put them together in a way that they don't contradict themselves? That's called harmonization. And I really think that we can. But before we even get to that, I don't I don't want to get lost in the details. So what are the main things that all four accounts affirm just without question? One, Jesus was buried in the tomb. Then the tomb was found empty a few days later. There is testimony of one or more women. Jesus appeared to the disciples, and the disciples went from despair to belief. Okay? All four Gospels establish that. So even if, you, even if you thought, oh, this one detail is inconsistent here or there, the core of the narrative is, is there. It absolutely is there. By the way, I am not saying that I don't believe that the four are consistent with one another. I'm just trying to present this as, as objectively as I can. Well, so if we put the four together, can we come up with a coherent narrative? I have given one alternative in the blog post. I'm going to go through it real quick. Since we're not studying the other three Gospels, this is kind of nice to see, oh, what is the other information that we find? So, uh, like I said, I'll go through it rather quickly. One, Jesus is buried, as as several women watch. Two, the tomb is sealed and a guard is set. Three, at least three women, including Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, prepare spices to go to the tomb. An angel descends from heaven rolls the stone away and sits on it there's an earthquake and the guards faint the women arrive at the tomb and find it empty Mary Magdalene leaves the other women there and runs to tell the disciples the women still at the tomb see two angels who tell them that Jesus is risen the women leave to bring the news to the disciples the guards having roused themselves report the empty tomb to the authorities Mary the mother of James and the other women on their way to find the disciples see Jesus the women relate that they have Seen and heard to the disciples, Peter and John run to the tomb, see that it is empty, and find the grave clothes. Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb. She sees the angels, and then she sees Jesus. Later the same day, Jesus appears to Peter. Still on the same day, Jesus appears uh, to um, other disciples. That evening, the two disciples report the event to the eleven. Jesus appears to the ten disciples. Jesus appears to all eleven. Jesus appears to seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus appears to five hundred disciples. Jesus appears to his half-brother James. Jesus commissions his disciples, Jesus teaches his disciples, and then Jesus ascends into heaven. Okay. I know that was a long list, but if you were to read all four Gospels, you would get all that information. In our case, we're only studying the one, so we're only going to focus really on a few of those twenty three points that I read. The other challenge that I want to address rather quickly is... You will hear, mostly in popular media, I don't know that scholars really are making these arguments anymore. Well, I'm sure that somebody is out there, but none that I'm aware of anyways, that the whole story of the resurrection that we read in chapter 20 is essentially the repurposing of other ancient myths, right? They say, oh, this is made up, and it's clearly made up because it resembles whatever other myth that, and and there's about three that they keep going back to. Now. Um, I hope by this point I have shown that at least I try to be as objective as I can. Um, And I find this objection to be just about the worst one out there. And you don't have to take my word for it. If you ever hear this objection, this would be my suggestion. Pull up, say, John chapter 20, read it, and then pull up whatever myth this, this skeptic is talking about, and you will find that they're actually not similar. They're only similar if you abbreviate them and just focus on the really big picture. Once you get into it, the, there's really no myth out there that is eerily similar to the resurrection story. Um and you know if we have time at the end of today, I'll go into more details about that. Like I said, I don't really want to waste time on that, but um but I, I do want to emphasize one thing out of this discussion. Part of the reason that you won't actually find another similar myth out there is that the idea of resurrection of true bodily resurrection was exclusively a jewish idea right in other cultures you saw um people who were revivified so maybe somebody died and they came back to life but it is in their same old body there's there's really no change that has happened there and even those tales are rare more normally or or usually. What other myths will have is an apparition of the person who died, like a ghost, or that person will be deified. They will become a god, and then as a god, they appear. But to put it this way, their, their body is still in the ground. Their body still in the tomb. The idea that it is their actual body that comes out of the tomb, and that body has been glorified, that is an exclusively Jewish idea. So you don't really find that in other ancient stories. Moreover. Oh, what was I going to say? Um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. I normally don't do that. Um, Oh, yes. Moreover, the Jews believed in this, but they thought it would happen at the end of time. So the Jews also did not have other stories quite like this one. So this whole tale of resurrection really is quite unique. And again, you don't have to take my word for that. If you ever hear the objection, oh, no, no, this is just like the story, say, of Osiris. Okay. Read the story of Osiris, and I'm confident that I don't have to do any convincing. You will see for yourself that they are quite different. Um, Okay. So, with all of kind of the apologetics out of the way, let's get into the actual narrative. Um, The narrative opens with Mary going to the tomb. She goes on Sunday. That's the first day of the week. So, remember that Jesus died on Friday, kind of late on Friday. So, the women could not finish the burial rites that, that would have been appropriate because the Sabbath began. And during the Sabbath, you can't do some of those things. That was Saturday. So she gets up very, very early on Sunday. It's as it is still dark, and she's gonna go finish the burial rites. Well, if nothing else, you know, the narrative begins effectively pointing towards Mary's devotion. I mean, she got up as early as she could. Uh, she she really wants to go honor her teacher. And as is, is, she's going over there, uh, she finds that there, the stone has been moved away and the tomb is empty. So she runs back to the disciples. And notice she says, we don't know where they have put them." So there's actually, although John only mentions Mary Magdalene, the, the language, the plural language in verse two makes it clear that there, that there are more people, presumably the other women were mentioned In the other gospels um and you know she says they have taken him her her conclusion there is not impossible although it's very unlikely what i mean by that is that sure there were robbers that would go into tombs and take anything of value that was you know somewhat common in the ancient world but normally they wouldn't take the body for somebody to take the body would have been unconscionable to them. And uh, however, uh, really to to kind of bounce this out, would that ever happen? Yes. Sometimes a body might be stolen to be used in witchcraft, particularly if the body had died in some kind of brutal way, which of course we have that here. So perhaps she thought something like that was happening. But again, this would have shocked the conscience um, that just very, very unlikely. Well, so what could have happened to the body? Before we get into, you know, the obvious explanation of of resurrection, I mean, the obvious explanation in the text, I would like to address what are the other possibilities that, you know, that skeptics uh, bring up? One alternative would be the the idea that Jesus wasn't fully dead from the crucifixion. And so after he was put in the tomb, he actually kind of came back. I shouldn't say came back to life. I mean, that's an expression. He Uh, woke up again. He wasn't dead. He woke up and he came out. But as uh, one of our participants mentioned last time, and it's funny that I came across this on my research and I never had before. We uh, we have instances of crucified people who were taken down before they were dead. I think three instances, Josephus, who was a, a Jewish historian from the time he wrote about this. All three people who came down from the cross ended up dying anyways. And in the case of Jesus, he was flogged, he was crucified, including nails through hands and feet. Then he was pierced on the side. The idea that Jesus could have just been fine, it is really a a kind of a no-go. Now, of course, another theory is that the tomb was not really empty. All of this is made up, uh, which, I mean, people believe that, uh, but the 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 problem that this theory runs into is it, it's hard to explain the behavior of the apostles after the fact you know uh several of the apostles perhaps all of them went on to die uh you know very very uh violent deaths you know they were persecuted. Now, we're not really sure that all of them were persecuted. Uh, it depends how much tradition you believe or don't believe. But we know that at least several of them were. That that we know for sure. Um, and it, it would make little sense to die for something that you fabricated yourself, right? For something that you, you knew was a lie. Um, and it raises other questions like, why would the Jewish and Roman authorities not produce the body? If all this was made up, just, you know, come up with the body and say, no, these guys are lying. So those theories run into problems. Um, But um, at any rate, the the tomb is found empty, right? Mary Magdalene has gone back, told the apostles, and the the apostles are shocked by the news. They run to the tomb and they also find it empty. Now, there's a detail that John really emphasizes that it's easy to, to miss just because it doesn't seem like a big deal. John keeps saying, The wrappings, the linen wrappings, they were lying there. And then the the face wrapping, it was rolled up next to the other wrappings. And John actually repeats this three times. So it is kind of a big deal. Why is he doing that? There's really, I think, two reasons for that. One, this resurrection is not like the resurrection of Lazarus, right? Lazarus, we could say, was revivified. He just came back in his... Same old body. There was no change there. Um, and so when Lazarus wakes up, if you guys remember this from, this is from chapter eleven, feels like an eternity ago. He's still wrapped up in all the bandages. So somebody has to help him get out, right? Jesus says, unwrap him and let him go. He he's he wasn't being mummified. That's not the correct word. But if you want to picture that, it's sort of like that, right? Sort of like a like a mummy all all wrapped up. Well, in the case of Jesus. You know, however it is that Jesus came back to life, he didn't have that that problem somehow, right? So it's kind of giving us a clue that this is not like the prior resurrections that we have seen, the prior revivic revivifications. Um, the other detail is the fact that the, the particularly the, the face cloth, it it is rolled up and set aside. Okay, this is not the scene that would have been left by a robber, right? Like it's not like a robber would would steal anything of value, which in this case, there wasn't anything. Take Taking the body out of the wrappings for whatever odd reason, and then taking the time to roll up the wrappings neatly and set them on the bed. This would be like if somebody robbed your house and they took the time to make your bed. It just doesn't make sense, right? So this is kind of the scene that was left by somebody who had time, who was in a peaceful scenario, in an organized scenario, not a robbery or something aggressive. So it starts painting a picture. Now, you could make some theological point about the face wrapping being left, essentially before we could, we could only partially see and now we have a full revelation now that the face cloth has, has come off. And some people do uh, make that point I, I'm not really going to make that point because I don't find it to be in the text, but I just want to make you aware that, sure, that, that's something that people say, and if if that's something you believe, well, more power to you. I, I won't try to convince you either way. Then we hear something rather curious. John believes, right? It says that they, they go to the tomb. Uh, John and Peter, forgive me, let me be more precise. It says, Peter and the other disciple. Now, this other disciple, uh, most people would agree it is the disciple that Jesus loved. In other words, this is John, the guy writing the gospel. John seems to always refer to himself in the third person like this without giving his own name. This is not really unusual for the style of writing at the time that John was writing, but uh, that's neither here nor there for, for purposes of today. So I think it's safe to assume that this is Peter and John. They make it to the tomb. John uh, looks at the empty tomb and he, quote, believed. Now, we have heard this word believed in the past, right? Actually, all the way back to chapter one, if you remember Nathaniel, he believes in Jesus, right? And Jesus actually responds. He's like, because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these, right? It's like, wow, it didn't take much for you to believe. Uh, You're going to see, you know, uh, much more amazing things. But, Every time that the apostles believed in the past, or really not just the apostles, but, but any of the followers of Jesus believed, at the end of the day, none of them were with Jesus at the darkest time, right? The, all of the, Whatever belief they had was not all that solid. Now here, um, uh, John believes, and, and we will see in the, in the end of the, the narrative of the book of John, that all the other apostles will believe as well. And as far as we know from both the Bible and historical tradition or church tradition, none of them fell away again, right? They actually stood firm and they were willing to die for Jesus. So this belief that we're, that we're hearing about here is different in some way, right? Um, now, of course, as a Christian, I believe that, that it's because this belief is, is uh, it really is of a different kind. It's of the kind that, that, Uh, turns you into a new creation this kind of born from above um, thing Um, but certainly there's a distinction and then finally uh, you know in this kind of scene John says that the disciples had not understood that this that the scriptures foretold that Jesus had to rise from the dead now in this case John does not tell us what scripture he is talking about we could speculate something like Psalm 1610 that says, you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful follower to see the pit. Uh, Perhaps that's what John is thinking about. But for once, we don't really have much of a clue. So again, I don't want to spend too much time just speculating on on what John means. If it's not in the text, I'd rather move on. Uh, Okay, so they go back, right? The the apostles go back. Mary Magdalene still remains uh, by the empty tomb. And I would say that that this particular scene, when when Mary remains uh, seemingly all all by herself, it is kind of the sweetest, most touching scene in in the gospel. Um, it because right, everyone has left, and she just refuses to leave. She's there. She's distraught, but she cannot leave the tomb of her teacher. Um, and you know, she's crying. And here's where she she runs into. Two angels, and they ask her, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, you might be surprised at the relatively normal exchange that Mary has with the two angels. And I think this will be surprising to you if you picture the angels like art normally does, you know, with the wings and and the halos and the whole thing. But it's actually quite possible that in this narrative, these angels just look like regular people. Now they were dressed in white which would not have been completely odd at the time. I will discuss that in just a second. Um, but angels in the Bible don't really look like they're portrayed in popular media. Um, they uh, Some angelic beings uh, look super, super odd uh, in the Old Testament, and some of them just look like regular people. In Genesis chapter 18, we actually see a story of two angels that they're referred to very casually as two men and they walk into a town and nobody thinks anything of it in the sense of like nobody just recognizes them as, as angels. Moreover, the word angel just means messenger, okay? So just for you to, to picture the scene, again, it, I wasn't there. <laughs> I, I cannot tell you exactly what Mary saw. But, but from the dialogue, it's quite likely that these two angels just look like regular guys. And, and they're sitting there, right, on on the bed where, where Jesus had been laying down dead. Um, and they say, why are you crying? Now, why is it relevant that they're dressed in white? Really, being dressed in white wasn't completely unusual at the time. Even in pagan culture, sometimes people would dress in white to worship uh, their gods. But in the Jewish culture, uh, Jewish priests uh, often wore linen. Uh, sometimes worshippers would go to the temple dressed all in white or in linen, you know. Um, and... And really the significance of the color white is that you would wear black for mourning, just like we do today. You would wear white uh, as a symbol of joy and life. So when the angels are there, they're not mourning, right? They're celebrating. This is this is actually a happy time. Again, th- this is kind of painting a picture, right? That That Mary has not stepped into a funeral. She has stepped into a tomb where everything seems neatly organized and there's two guys dressed in white who don't seem sad. We're asking her, why are you sad, right? The one not getting the point is Mary. Of course, I'm not blaming her, You know, but just there is definitely a motif here that is building. Well, then Mary, she turns around and she sees another man who she believes to be the gardener. This makes perfect sense because the tomb was in a garden, if you guys remember from last time. So um, she doesn't recognize who it is. And this person says, who are you looking for to, to Mary? In very, you know, in very much in keeping with John's style, this is the kind of question that on the surface makes sense, right? Who are you looking for? You're here crying for somebody, who, who would that be? But if you analyze it from a deeper theological point, it's a very impactful question. Who are you looking for, right? Are you looking for the risen Lord? Well, um, Mary Magdalene's response is, is again. I mean, I'm not trying to be overly emotional here, but it's like shockingly sweet. She says, "Just tell me where he is. I will. I will go get him." Right? She's not. There's no accusation here. Uh, you know, she seems to assume that this guy had something to do with taking the body, but she's not trying to say, "How could you do such a thing?" You know you're the most terrible person. Whatever. No, she's just saying I don't, I don't care. I just tell me, just tell me where he is, and I'll make it right. That's all she wants. Uh, it just shows a, a level of love and devotion that that is really touching. I think when you when you think about it. Um, and then this gardener, quote unquote, calls her by name, Mary. In that instant, she instantly recognizes him. And then they they have a you know. Well, then she responds by by calling her him, my teacher, in, in Aramaic, of course. This, this term, my teacher, is both rather intimate in the sense of it really is my teacher. Uh, there, th- there's a connection being claimed. But also, uh, calling him teacher is, uh, is a term of honor, right? So that is how she responds to him when she sees him. This scene of, of Mary not recognizing Jesus and then Jesus um, disclosing himself, um, is the first of several recognition scenes. This actually happens multiple times in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke. Um, it, it seems that Jesus in his resurrected body has the ability to hide his identity. Now this may seem at first really odd in, I mean I'll grant it it's, it is strange, but I think it makes sense when you when you realize that this was a trait of heavenly beings. Angels could hide their identity, seemingly in, you know, in a similar way. And even God himself in the Old Testament appeared in unrecognizable forms. Again, you could, go back, you could go back to Genesis 18. So the new body of Jesus seems to have these heavenly traits, if we want to call them that. Well, also this appearance to Mary is the first. Now, I, I really didn't write this correctly in my blog. This is the first appearance of Jesus in the Gospel of John but chronologically, when you read the other Gospels, it is not actually his first appearance. Um, and you can go back to the harmonization that that I quoted at the beginning, if you know if you want to see what would be Jesus' actual first appearance. At any rate, um, the appearances of Jesus are key to the Gospel; they're key to Christianity. Um, we could say that on the cross, Jesus finished his work, right? But the problem is that the, if if Jesus had not come back to life, we wouldn't know, right? We we would think that Jesus lost, that he was a liar, that the things that he taught, the things that he did were not true. The resurrection is the stamp of approval. It is the proof that, that Christians provide that, no, Jesus was the real deal. He really was who he said he was, and what he said was true, Um. And in the earliest Christian creed that we have recorded, this is out of first Corinthians fifteen verses one through eight. It goes back to that is Jesus appeared to this guy and that guy and that guy, including five hundred brothers and sisters. So Jesus made all these appearances, and these appearances changed people they they actually created the movement. It is the people who saw Christ uh you know back to life who then went out and spread the gospel. so they are the key. Proof, um, you know, kind of the key event that then launched Christianity per se. Um, I see that I'm kind of running out of time, so I'll go a little bit faster here. After Mary has this exchange with Jesus, there is an odd statement by Jesus, right? He says, do not touch me for I have not yet ascended to my father. Now, this expression seems odd if what you're picturing is Mary just kind of poking Jesus with one finger to figure out if he's real or not right then it's it, it's almost kind of funny for him to say, "Do not touch me, but probably what we have going on here is Mary Magdalene, who has this just incredible devotion to Jesus, is probably holding on to him right either a full embrace, although that would be odd for the time you know men men and women didn't quite interact that way but she may have been holding on to his hands, perhaps even to his feet, right? In, an, in, in a true act of devotion. Uh, and so when Jesus says, do not touch me, what he means is stop touching me. Let me go. <laughs> stop holding on to me. There's things to do, right? We, we both have, have things to do, and then I must return to my Father in heaven. So that's probably what that expression means. The grammar certainly lends itself to that interpretation. So, so I'm not just kind of trying to rewrite the text here. And it certainly is what makes the most sense of Jesus later telling the disciples, touch me, touch my wound so you can really believe that it's me. It, it would make zero sense for Jesus to say to Mary Magdalene, do not touch me. And then the apostles, yeah, touch me. Um the other shocking, that, shocking thing about this moment is that Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, "Go to my brothers and tell them about this." There, there's really two surprising things: one, that Jesus calls the apostles brothers. This is the first time that we see this language in the Gospel of John. Why is it surprising? Because if you go all the way back to chapter one, right? This is John 1:12. It says. But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. This has been the theme of the gospel, right? You can go back to John three sixteen, the, the super famous verse. The, what, John came to, oh, sorry, what Jesus came to do is to make a way so that we can be part of the family, that we can be children in the very real sense of being sons or daughters. Um, and now that Jesus has accomplished his work through the cross, He can actually finally call them that, his brothers and sisters, his siblings. They're part of the family. They have so-called inheritance rights to the kingdom. Uh, So it is just, it's a beautiful moment that is easy to miss. The other thing that's shocking is that Jesus tells a woman, go tell them, right? He is relying in the testimony of a woman who were considered unreliable in the ancient world. Their testimony would not be taken as seriously as the testimony of a man in court, for example. Um, so the fact that Jesus uses women for this, you know, for this event, it it is really surprising, um, and it, and it's something that you know if you think the gospels are made up, it's it, it's very hard to understand why somebody would would include women in this part of the story. If you want the story to be treated as reliable, then the men or sorry, the people who would have encountered Jesus first would be men, uh, not women. Then. Uh, you know, Jesus appears uh, to the disciples. The disciples are still in hiding. They are afraid. Notice the difference between the men and the women, right? The women are actually displaying a lot more courage. Now, fair, you could say, but the women were allowed to be more emotional and to mourn in a very public way, even for someone who had been a criminal. And they probably wouldn't get in trouble. Whereas if men did that, they would be seen as, uh, you know, an accomplice. And so uh, sure, there's some truth to that, but still the men are not being overly brave i think I think that's fair to say uh the you know John tells us that the door is locked, and then Jesus just appears in the room uh again, this seems to hint to Jesus' new body being uh a little bit different that you know a little more heavenly in that regard it ca- it can't be constrained by the same physical reality. we can imagine that the the Apostles are shocked and they're probably saying, is he a ghost? Is it really him? Could this really be happening? And how does Jesus settle the debate? He shows his wounds. Now, again, this is key to understand that this is a resurrected person, something that um, the pagans did not believe in this kind of resurrection. And the Jews only believed this kind of resurrection would happen at the end at at the end time. And so um, it, Again, if this whole narrative is made up, this would be a very weird lie to, to come up with. It would have been much more normal to make up a story about Jesus being deified and then just appearing in the sky or something of the sort, right? Um, Okay, shoot. I'm at the 40 minute mark. Uh, let me, okay. So, well, at this point, um, I can very easily put the content that I have left in the next week. Uh, Let me... Uh, Say, Matt, if you want to open it up for questions, we can do that. And if I have time, I'll come back to the material I had.
0: Sure. As always, guys, if you'd like to participate, just write the word question in the chat and we will bring you in to discuss. Just the word question is sufficient and I'll get back with you. Um, Until someone requests to speak, I have an invitation for you to expand on something from the lecture. Or if you'd like to use that time to get into what you weren't able to, you let me know. What's your preference?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can keep going as long as nobody has a question or or comment or, uh, I mean, yeah, that'd be fine by me. I just don't want to take the opportunity away if anyone wants to participate.
0: We don't have any requests to speak at this point, and I'm sure your thoughts are more useful than my. Uh, I, I I just want to. My only thought was you you mentioned that you were uh, open to expanding on this idea that the resurrection is some sort of recycled myth that was borrowed mm-hmm. from some other story. I'd like to hear more about that, but we yeah. can do that at another time or we can come back to that when you're finished.
1: No, no, let, let's talk about that now. That that's great. So these are the things that I think people should kind of watch out for, right? If that argument is going to go through, really the, that argument has to show uh two or three things. One, that the myth predates the story of the resurrection. And, and I'll come back to that in just a second. Two, that the myth would have been known by the Jews at the time. Of course, that would not expect proof that the individual apostles were familiar with it, but at least the Jewish culture had to, you know, they, they had some contact with whatever myth is being claimed is really similar to the resurrection. And then three, that the myth and the resurrection story are strikingly similar to where it would be fair to assume that one is a copy of the other, right? well, the really of the ancient myths, the myths that really predate the the resurrection story, we don't have anything quite like that because again, those other cultures did not believe in resurrection. And, Again, let me come back to that in just a second. Let me let me address the myths that come after. The myths that are strikingly similar to the resurrection they date to about the third century, right? So, two hundred years ish after the resurrection, uh, these would come from what's called the mysteries or the mystery cults from the Remo, sorry, uh, Greco-Roman culture. <laughs> um, and yes, you you do find some similarities there, but again, the myths are. They come after the resurrection. So there was time for the Christian story to influence the Greco-Roman myths. And actually, there's even influence going the other way. You start seeing Christians in the 3rd century that um, begin to adopt language that is very similar to the mysteries. Uh, But you don't actually see that in the 1st century or even the 2nd century. You start seeing it in the 3rd century. So I think that those those uh greco-roman mysteries can be easily argued against because they come after the fact or at least we don't have good evidence that they came before the fact then um some of the other ancient myths that sometimes are brought up they're so remote to the jewish culture that th- there's just no good reason to say that they came into contact um but then to be completely fair are there myths like ancient myths of dying and rising gods that the Jews would have been aware of. Yes, I'm not claiming there were none. The The example that gets brought up the most, I think, would be Osiris. And Osiris was a uh, uh, Egyptian god that was killed and then resurrected. And from time to time, you'll see scholars say, you see, these are effectively the same story. And like I said, they seem similar if you just say that, if you say, well, Osiris was killed and then resurrected, so that's just like Jesus. But if you look at the details, Osiris, for example, uh, first of all, died in a completely different way, that his body was was completely uh, taken apart into bits and pieces, and then uh, all the pieces have to be brought together. Uh, Osiris uh, comes back to life and descends to the underworld and then rules in the underworld. So. It it is the kind of situation where Osiris is alive, but yet in the underworld. Um, and forgive me, I can't remember more of the details of the Osiris myth, but it, it actually gets even stranger than that. And what I'm getting at is once you look at those details, you realize this is, first of all, even the, the events of the death and resurrection are nothing like the story of Jesus. And most importantly, the significance is not there, right? Like, the, the story of Jesus and the resurrection has to do with the redemption of humanity. The myth of Osiris, for example, has none of those moral and spiritual overtones. Uh, neither do the Greco-Roman mysteries. So that's kind of what I was getting at. Uh, does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, and, and the latter part especially, because uh, I'm interested in, in what the rebuttals are, but I'm also interested in what the most common reference is. Uh, and and uh, it sounds like that's what you're getting at with the, the latter portion there with Osiris. We did get a uh, written question from Daniel. He says, uh, Robert, it is a central belief of Christianity that believers receive a new body. Yet, as we see with Jesus, he resurrects with his holy hands, as in his hands have holes in them, not that they are... Uh, they are holy but they're also holy if you get what he means sorry god for the bad pun why does he keep his scars and wounds but presumably we don't
1: well um i think that he kept his scars so that he could show it really was him and it really was a physical resurrection now um how is that going to work for the rest of us i we don't really know um, right, so maybe, I don't know, maybe we will keep some of our scars now in heaven, right, We know that there will be no 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 pain, no need of any kind. So I think it's safe to assume that somebody who lost his legs or whatever will, will regain them. I'm not I'm not denying that, but, um, but it's also undeniable that it will be our body, uh, like our very bodies that are healed and resurrected and glorified in some way so perhaps some of us will keep some of our scars um you know perhaps they're so they become so distinctive to us they're such a part of us that we wouldn't want to lose them um you know so i'm not even fully convinced that we will lose all of our scars i think we will lose some right if some again if somebody lost his nose or something i'm sure it will be healed um but yeah so that's what i would say it seems like jesus kept his scars very much on purpose so that he could prove it was him in the flesh and for all we know, we will keep some of our own. All
0: right. Thanks, Daniel. That is the only request to speak that we have for now. So uh, if you'd like to continue where you left off with the main content of the lesson, we could do that.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: so, And, I, and I'll, I will say if anyone would like to contribute, we still have 12 or so minutes. So if a thought comes up for you, uh, go ahead and uh, put question in the chat and I will uh, bring you in when we get a break in Robert's discussion.
1: Um, okay, so the, the next thing I was going to cover is this idea that you know Jesus appears to the to the disciples and then he uh you know he how's it uh, it says he breathes um on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now the the reason, like if you're just reading the text of John, you wouldn't think anything of that. But if you if you are familiar with the Bible, particularly the New Testament, There's something about this that might strike you as a little bit odd, right? Because when do we normally say that the disciples received the Spirit? Normally, we would say that happened during Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is is resurrected, is recorded, forgive me, in the book of Acts. And Pentecost happens several weeks. I think it's about seven weeks after Passover, but don't quote me on that. But it is several weeks at any rate. Well, then when we read John, we may be saying, then what gives? Uh, they're receiving the Spirit in John chapter twenty, seemingly right after the resurrection, and then they receive it again in Pentecost. Can we reconcile this? This does make sense, and I I do think that this makes a lot of sense. That what uh, you know what well let let me say this first. First of all, there are some scholars that that say that John really is referring here to the event at Pentecost. He just moves it in the timeline and then describes it a little differently. But I mean, the differences are so vast that if John really is talking about the event at Pentecost, I mean, that's tantamount to saying that John just made this up. Um, (laughs) So I'm not really on board with that interpretation of John chapter 20. Um, I, I think that these are separate events. This clearly happens right after the resurrection of Jesus. This is not the Pentecost event of weeks later, But I think that we are talking about receiving the Spirit in two different ways. I think in John, we have the the giving of the Spirit that is promised to every believer. Um, What do I mean by that? I mean, effectively, what Ezekiel is talking about in chapter 36. These are verses 26 to 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and he will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body and give you a heart of flesh will put my spirit within you i will take the initiative and you will obey my statutes and carefully observe my regulations right so in this promise of the spirit we see it normally in 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 the gospel of john the spirit is described or symbolized by water right uh, jesus tells the woman at the well i will give you the kind of water that will keep you from ever thirsting again Then in chapter 7, Jesus also talks about the living water that is the Holy Spirit. And that's made explicit in chapter 7. So every believer is promised the Holy Spirit. And I think that's exactly what we see in John chapter 20, when Jesus gives him the Spirit. Now, we know from Acts chapter 1 that then Jesus tells them, hey, wait for the power that will come with the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is an entirely different kind of event, right? The Holy Spirit comes down and empowers the apostles to, make, to, to do miracles. In fact, they start speaking in different languages to everyone that was there. Now, from uh, kind of an, op- an, uh, an apostolic sense, this makes a ton of sense. During, during that, that festival, uh, during Pentecost, there were Jews from all over the world and non-Jews. They were speaking different languages. So for God to empower the apostles right then and there to speak the different languages and do miracles, I mean, it was crucial to the beginning of Christianity. But I don't think that as believers, we're all guaranteed that kind of empowering by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that there's some denominations that, that do believe that, uh, but even those denominations would not say that somebody is not in Christ, that they don't have the Spirit in any way, shape, or form if they can't do uh, the more miraculous things, right? So, even, even, uh, no pun intended, a Pentecostal would agree that there is this this kind of these two interpretations of the giving of the Spirit. Now, think in John chapter 20, that's what's happening. They're receiving the Holy Spirit in the way that every believer does, such that we are now new creations. We are born again, or really, as it should be translated, we are born from above. That's what we see there. At least that's my argument. And then Finally, the last thing that I have is the very uh, cryptic phrase. I, I feel like if, anyone, if anything is going to get me in trouble tonight, it will be this. Um, it is, it, you know, then Jesus tells them after he gives them, well, first of all, Jesus sends them, says, hey, you will go out into the world. Um, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained that I think that that should make us curious, right? We should go, oh, what does it mean by that? Does it mean that the apostles now kind of have the right or the power or authority, I ought to say the authority to to pronounce people guilty or or you know innocent or or whatever um and that is certainly the Catholic interpretation of this text. uh Catholics say that yes, the, there is here an apostolic authority that is given to them they can effectively declare somebody uh as being innocent or guilty as saved or not saved and this authority goes down through apostolic succession to uh you know the representative of the apostles which the the pope comes to mind but it's really not just the pope it would be the magisterium it would be the pope and the bishops and so forth um so that would be the Catholic interpretation. I'm not really going to try to argue for it or against it. I just want to be fair and, and present that. But um, normally the, the, the non-Catholic or at the very least a Protestant view uh, would be a little bit different. And you would go back really to chapter 16 of the Gospel of John, where uh, I'm going to read this right quick. In chapter 16, we also see the spirit being tied to judgment. It says, uh, it says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I am going away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send them to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. So what am I getting at? that the, the apostles now are given the Spirit and the message of God, right? They are tasked with the ministry of Christ. And so as they go out into the world and they start preaching Christ, it really puts people to a choice, right? And, and there's the choice to accept the righteousness of God or to embrace the sinfulness of, as chapter 16 puts it, the ruler of this world. And it is in that sense that as they share the message, it creates this, this decision point uh, that they are um forgiving or retaining sins, because the, the apostles do have the authority as as everyone, as every believer has, at least that would be my argument as a as a Protestant, um to, to say, hey, this is in accordance with with God's revelation, or it's not. So that's how I would take that statement. Um, but again, depending on your tradition, you might go for the Catholic approach. That's that's all I have for today. I don't know. I, right. I thought, okay. surely we would have some pushback today or something. <laughs> uh, okay,
0: uh, uh, we don't have any requests to speak uh, currently, but we do have a couple minutes. Um, you mentioned there that can can you revisit for me what you what you said you thought would be the most controversial. Oh, I, I think I kind of missed that, but I want to understand what exactly the controversy is.
1: Yeah, it would be this idea when Jesus tells the apostles, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you retain anyone's sin, they're retained. So yeah. the, the controversy is, again, if you take the Catholic approach, then the Pope and the bishops and the priests uh, that formed the magisterium, they, they have a real authority to, to say, no, you are, you are damned. Right, like that—that that is an authority that they have. Um, if you take the more Protestant approach, uh, there is no person who has that authority. Really, the authority that believers have is to preach the gospel, and that will—that will effectively make people judge themselves uh, because they have the choice to embrace it or not. Um, and and n- normally. Protestants uh, take this authority that Catholics claim to be highly offensive. Hmm. I- I'm not attacking Catholics. I'm just trying to put forth the facts. <laughs> okay.
0: Thanks for explaining that. Uh, all right. If you don't have any more thoughts on the lesson content, uh, I suppose we can conclude with a reminder that, well, let me let me ask you this. I, I trust that we've gotten through the content in this lesson, so that would put us on track to have two remaining lessons. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think that's okay. Right.
0: So just so everyone's clear on the schedule for John's gospel, there will be two more uh, lessons coming up on the uh, next next two Saturdays. So that would be February 25th. And then we'll be finished with John's gospel on March 4th, after which there will be uh, a, a decently long break. And we will come back with the Bible study for season two with a different piece of content. But just to remind everyone, if you have thoughts about what that scripture uh, for study should be, please head on over to the Bible study page of the website and send Robert a message with your thoughts. And if there are uh, frequent requests, we will consider that in our decision-making any other thoughts about, uh, about how to continue the project going forward are also welcome because we want to continue doing it. And we certainly want to accommodate the people who are finding value in it and, and participating on a weekly basis. So we uh, invite your thoughts there. Anything else that you want to say before we're finished up, Robert?
1: Yeah, I think that's there. Thank you very much. Okay.
0: Well, thanks. And uh, I will also remind everyone, if you missed any part of the lesson, you need to listen back, you want to read Robert's blog, any of those things, you can find all the content on the Bible study page of the website. It's linked on the homepage, of course, com. Thanks, everybody. We hope to catch you back next Saturday night.